Welcome to the Safe Haven Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda. The Safe Haven Podcast is a space for you to be real, raw, emotional, vulnerable, hilarious, and are completely carefree. This podcast offers a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life, in a judgment-free zone. Join me and my powerful guests as we dive into a variety of conversations and topics. Listen from where you are, as you are. Think, laugh, and cry along with us, whether you're in your car, in your kitchen, chasing your kids, running your business, caregiving for someone you love, getting a mani-pedi, while you're in the hospital, a treatment center, sitting on the deck, on the dock, or out for a run. These weekly stories and messages will hit you right in the heart, fill up your cup, and recharge your spirits. I cannot stop smiling already because joining me today is the lovely Tiffany Nicholson-Smith. She is an international meditation and yoga teacher, as well as an Ayurvedic practitioner, and I am so honored to have you with me in, well, actually, I'm with you, I guess, in your space. So welcome to the Safe Haven Podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Amanda. Yeah. Thank you. It feels very special. And you and I definitely met in a very organic way and there are no mistakes. I feel like you have been such a, an impactful person in my life and I can't wait for your story to be shared with the world. So oh, thank, thank you. you for that. Thank yeah. you. And you're jet setting again on Sunday off to India. I don't know if it's jet setting, but I'm going again. Yeah. It feels like second homing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah true. True. And we'll get there. We'll actually get there. Um, I love to start a little bit just so that the listeners are understanding a little bit about who you are. Where did you grow up? What makes you who you are as for how you've grown up? And then we'll kind of dive into what your current life situation is right now. Yeah, it's a beautiful question. It's like that question of nurture and nature, yes. right? And uh, I was actually born here in Canada. And what's funny is that often when I come back, people ask me, where are you from? Because yeah. I have this funny accent that I don't hear, but is a bit of a mixture of all those years of not living on Canadian soil, yeah. I suppose. But uh, I was born in GTA area in Brampton. Funny enough, amongst a lot of Indians. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know at that time that uh, that I would be drawn there eventually. And then we uh, we moved to the countryside, so out in the Kawarthas. And I grew up really in a tiny little hamlet. Um, most of my life, I or growing up most of my life, I was an only child. And um, my brother was born when I was 12. So I grew up really with wow. big skies and uh, a lot of space around me and a lot of time for contemplation because we were out mm -hmm. in the country. So it was a, a quiet, really a life of solace in many ways, the way I grew up. I guess projecting at that time, even moving forward and where you're at now, did you always find yourself to be a super introspective kid? It's an up? interesting question. Not really, because there was some tumult as I was growing up. There were some things like all of us have in the home and everybody was dealing with their own movements. We could call it now karma or sufferings. Or, and because of that, there was also a tendency to, uh, to externalize as much as possible, to find... Mm -hmm. I would say strategies of protection. And so my strategy was to achieve, you know, to okay. do things, to stay yeah. active, to stay dynamic and busy. But at the same time, there was always this sort of wide-eyed quality. Mm -hmm. You know, at least this is what was reflected from my mother. And so both were there. You know, there was a lot of contemplation, a lot of inquiry, but there was also a lot of busyness since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've looked at later in life and uh, something that definitely in my trajectory has had to be uh, a washing and unlearning, right? Oh, and I there's think we, so much yeah. unlearning, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, always. And I think we all have that, you know, the tendencies that we developed as children mm -hmm. uh, out of survival mechanisms. Mm -hmm. 
So if you if you grew up in, you know, this big, big sky area, did you go to university? Yeah, I did. And where'd you go? Yeah, I actually went here at Trent. At yeah. Trent? Yeah, okay, it's it was so funny because I felt, I always felt like I would leave. Right. That sense was always there. And, uh, and I intended to, but the program that I wanted to go for, which was actually development, international development, the best program at that time in all of Canada was here at Trent. No way. <laughs> well, kudos to Trent. <laughs> and then did you move on after that or did you study anything in particular did you do even I guess not post-secondary but like anything past your post-secondary yeah what happened through that Amanda was I noticed my call to international development was really a call to service you know it was really to serving others but I didn't have that languaging at the time so it fell in the academic field in in that arena let's say that and so my third year of university I went to Ecuador to study and live and work for an organization there and that really opened the heart space and mm-hmm. the mind and that would have been my first introduction really to a reality other than the conditioned reality that I that I had of known here I would say some things really started shifting there and living I lived in the Amazon also during that time and I was working with communities that had never left the Amazon and that was deeply impactful and something you know as I returned here something was still percolating I was marinating in that for a while and so I was supposed to go do my master's actually in that which would eventually lead to a PhD I was accepted and I felt this compelling force to spend a year uh where I would just take a year off before my master's. And I was working for an organization, working with Mexican migrant workers here in Canada and decided to go to Mexico to see the families and to see their stories and and to work with them. And while I was there, I was in the jungle there also near some ruins. And I had uh, an epiphanic experience. Let's say it in that way. I had a compelling sense that I needed to fast and I didn't really know anything technically about fasting and I was living in a small tent and um, and I fasted for three days and I met a man in the jungle at that time it's so funny I'm telling you this story and he had a tree of life tattooed on his forehead and um, and things just hit and when they hit, they hit really hard. And so it contacted me with a reality of death and impermanence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the idea of 2012 was coming at that time, the Mayan prophecies. And I realized at this very time of my life where I should have been, you know, ready to start in many ways, you know, you've finished university or I'm moving towards postgrad studies to start everything. I realized that meaning couldn't be found in, in the achieving and the continuity of accreditation and getting things and and that really we're all gonna die Mm -hmm. that's what hit so hard and from that moment on I just continued to have directionality towards India I received books teachings while in Mexico it was amazing how so give me a time frame how old are you at this point at that point I was like 22 I was gonna say 22 23 okay yeah about 22 yeah and so everything started to happen that I received yeah books teachings um, not necessarily Vedic, but Indian in context. And, uh, and the next year I found myself in India. Wow. Yeah. It was by like, yourself. it was you immediate. Went, you went over by I yourself. I went with a friend at that time, actually a partner, a boyfriend. Yes. I dragged him kicking and screaming and now he lives there and <laughs> really? he's a monk. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, and he's deeply thankful, obviously, that I asked him to come. I bet he is. Okay, so you've now landed in India, and what are your next steps? So when we originally went, it was because there was this compelling force to work in service and development still, but in um, organic farming, but especially seed saving. So, you know, I had this growing love for uh, indigenous seed and really Gaia. Um, and in that way, uh, working with a really eminent um, both teacher and freedom fighter, she is in many ways, her name is Dr. Vandana Shiva. And she had an organization that was, and still has, that was a huge seed bank in the north of India. So I found myself there and working for the organization there. And very close to there, just a couple hours away, is Rishikesh, which is thought of as the international capital of yoga. So I went for a weekend, and then I stayed for a month, and then I stayed for four years. Oh my. And you didn't come home in that time? I didn't come home back to Canada for four years after that, uh, after that initial what a touch shift. in. Oh my goodness. That yeah. would have become your everything. It absolutely did. So after going to Rishikesh, and I still remember the moment of realizing the, the school that I felt called to go to. Uh -huh. I was in another class on another side of the city at that time. And I was in the class, in the yoga class, and I had this remembrance of seeing this poster that said the esoteric tradition of yoga explained or introductory lecture. And it just flashed in the mindscape. And I said, thank you very much, G, you know, like sir, to the man who was teaching. I need to go. And I just got up from the class and it took about 15 minutes to walk. And so I heard, hurriedly walked to the other side of, of the town of Rishikesh and entered the hall. And that was the hall that later I became uh, affiliated as a teacher for and continued to teach. And I ran that school later. And yeah, it just, it changed everything, what I was introduced to at that time. Mm -hmm. And um, and from that, I started to do retreats. And yeah, so it led to four years between Thailand and India mm -hmm. uh, of profound, impactful self-discovery and recognitions. And yeah, yeah, before I returned here. And so what brought you back to Canada then? Really just a visit. Yeah. So you, <laughs> At that time it was just a visit right. and then I went back again. So the first time I went, I yeah, I was there for three and a half or four years. Then I came back to see my mom and I went back a couple months later. So that would have now felt like home. It definitely was home. And so only until about, I would say, Amanda, about six years ago, uh, I spent much more time in India especially, but India and Thailand than, um, than here. And, uh, and about six years ago, I started coming back to Canada. I came for a visit. I was met by a, a sweet presence at a studio that was just opening. I just dropped in. It was also a health food store to grab some things on my way. And um, she said, would you stay and teach a, a teacher training here if I got enough people? And I said, well, actually, I'm on my way out of the country soon. And she said, but really, I just feel like, um, like this is something that I'm called to ask. And I said, okay. If in a month or two, you know, we could have 12 participants. Well, she had 12 participants in like 10 days. Oh, wow. So I took that as God's yes. yes. And I said, okay, I'll stay. And that led to a growing return to come back to this area, to come back to the Korthas, to come back to Ontario, to share here and, um, and to come every summer. And now it's grown even this year. I've been here for, for more months, you know, for six, seven months and, yeah. and it's continuing to grow, but I still return every year to India. And, and another place that you and I had crossed paths with was at the retreat 
the women's retreat at Ali Boothroyd's place. Absolutely. Yes. And that is such a special retreat as well. Yeah, it's a special area. And what Ali has created is so, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And over the years, connecting with so many people in the Sangha here, in the community here. Yeah. And she came and did the 300-hour teacher training that mm-hmm. I've offered here. And after that time, uh, yeah, we've had various offerings there. And these women's retreats that she's doing are just so beautiful because it's... Uh, such a collective space for women to come together in this really important work. Oh yeah. Right? And you yeah. see what they take away from it. It's Absolutely. Just incredible. I even remember, I just felt like I was floating out of that place at the end even of the Even in weekend. one day, right? One day or a weekend. It's, it's really beautiful. So yeah. yeah, that's how, that's one of the ways that you and I anchored. Yes. But actually there's so many ways, Amanda, that we were We've connected. Yeah. I know. And even just a shout out to Abby because yes. I mean, you were the officiant at Abby and Greg's wedding. Yeah, it's true. And Abby Blythe Hagerman. Yes. Yeah. Or luck now actually. Luck. Exactly. Um, I want to bring you back to when you are in India, what does um, a teaching day look like for you there? Or what were your biggest, well, actually, I guess this is a two part. What were your biggest shifts or biggest changes from what life was here for you to what normal became in India? Oh my goodness. I suppose in India, uh, everything was emptied out. So there was no normal, right? Because all of the conditionings of what uh, a structured lifestyle or what what I assumed to lo- life to look like here was sort of questioned. Mm-hmm. So I started to live much more, I would say, in a, a sort of ashramic um, lifestyle, you know, waking up uh, very early before sunrise, what we call Brahma Muhurta, this time of creation, which okay. is like an hour and a half before the sunrise. And, uh, and much of the country wakes up. You know, this is what's so beautiful about India is culturally so much of the spirituality still is held, even if someone doesn't necessarily say that they're adhering to one religion or another. It's just in the pulse of the culture. I love so that. they wake up at that time and the smells and the sounds. And so moving in that way and, and the food and the diet and, um, and really the commitment to sadhana, the commitment to practice, to meditation and to yoga. But there wasn't really, uh, it wasn't like I was living in one place all the time, although Rishikesh was home uh, with a little place right on the Ganga and the Ganges River for many of those winters, uh, which was a beautiful way to, to wake. And then, yeah, teaching, sharing um, through the blessing, really humbled blessing, I would say, mm-hmm. of the teachers that I was inspired by. Yeah. And um a couple primary teachers of Advaita, of non-duality, and also of classical yoga. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of my days were filled with with sharing and sitting with other beings whose hearts and, and souls were being open to, to truth. Mm-hmm. So really effortless, I would say, Amanda. But I can't think of like a regimented schedule. Yeah, because right? they were so different, like you said. They were so different and yet so regular like there was just such a simplicity and regularity Mm -hmm. um, to life there and I say that maybe in past tense because I notice the seductive nature of uh, the contemporary movement of culture here and how irregular everything is and we talk about this so much in the Ayurvedic teachings you know it is so seductive that we can wake up at any different time each day and go to bed at any time and that our, our lives are much more chaotic here Mm -hmm. and that's leading to a lot of illness and Mm -hmm. and disease and whether that's physical or mental or even spiritual Um, whereas there I would say there's still sort of a tide a pulse a cadence you know rhythm to the life that um, that keeps you in in this simple movement Mm -hmm. of life which is really balancing really harmonizing and in many ways there's a stillness to it there's a deep stillness to it Mm -hmm. 
With hmm. Ayurveda, what, when, and how did you start to get into yeah. Ayurveda as an Ayurvedic practitioner work? Yeah, it's an interesting one because my love was uh, from the beginning for this gift of classical yoga. And when I say that, what I mean is like Hatha yoga in its origins. So, um, so all parts of the yogic path and really yoga in its, in its clear intentionless intention to moksha, to enlightenment. That was primary for me to wake up through the yogic uh, recognition. So whether that was physical yoga or um, yogic awareness and yogic living, let's say. And so yoga and meditation were primary throughout all those years. Now we're talking, you know, it's been about 15 years. And, um, and then just by living in India and being in the field of the Vedas, Ayurveda is, is part of this. It arises from the exact same source. All of it arises from the Vedas. And so I started going to some Ayurvedic doctors. Part of the yogic teachings are, uh, are intertwined with the Ayurvedic teachings. So you find parts of Ayurveda in yoga. For example, what we call the Shatkarma Kriya, the six actions of cleansing, which are found in the yogic texts, also come from Ayurveda. So all of it was so incestuous in mm -hmm. many ways that um, that I was already learning Ayurveda, but in a more, you know, just in a more, uh, I don't say, I wouldn't say superficial, but just a light way. And then food and consciousness since I was a child, food was a huge part of my life and, and not something that was nurtured into me, really, in my family. Um, it just was a very important way that I loved to nourish others and contact with the earth for some reason. It, it was something that was solely mine, I would say, in many ways, the way I, I was born. And so I would, um, I started to cook at a very young age. And so food and consciousness started to be part of my yogic lifestyle and contemplating uh, plant-based eating and, and how that affects our openness to the moment and to presence-based living. And, and through that, uh, individuals started asking for consultations and for workshops, but I wasn't accredited. Mm -hmm. There was no accreditation. So I started offering some, some yeah, workshops, courses, various things in sort of Vedic uh, cooking, and in veganism, although I don't really use that terminology mm -hmm. anymore. And at that time, you know, a plant-based diet or veganism was actually quite new in many ways. It was, it was a new introduction, even for people who had been vegetarian yeah. for, for much of their lives. Because in the Vedic tradition, many people are lacto-ovo-vegetarian, right? So vegan was a new thing. And then eventually I thought, maybe I should be accredited in something. And that was an interesting movement because I looked at different uh, programs, you know, whether it was to become a naturopathic doctor alongside teaching meditation and yoga or, um, or holistic nutrition. And Ayurveda just kept coming strongly. And then once I did one course, I realized um, that I had no interest in accreditation, although it all happened, and just more interest in this becoming a huge part of the Dharma, mm -hmm. becoming a huge part of what I was going to share right. as well. It just... Let's say it just entered in so effortlessly that it's like it already was. It already was here. It was a remembrance mm -hmm. in, in many ways. And I say that really humbly. I don't mean that, you know, I have all the holdings of Ayurveda. I'm still constantly learning of and even more today than, than ever. But it just, you know, the drinking of it was so effortless. Mm -hmm. And for listeners that have absolutely no idea what Ayurveda is, 
Yes. Can you give, I know that we could be here for three weeks <laughs> talking about Ayurveda, but let's, let's just start there. Oh my goodness. I'm always uh, a little bit challenged, the, you know, to be very simple. I would say that Ayurveda really uh, intends to bring us into contact with what it is to live in our own naturalness, to live in our birthright as, as freedom, as deepest healthfulness on every level. So actually the way it's ascribed in, in the original text by Charaka and Shashruta is that health, swasta, is that we have health not just physically, mentally, but that we also, and that means utmost balance, neutrality, actually, like a sacred neutrality, this ease, but also that we have this deep peace, this deep ease in our soul. So our connection to what they say is Atman, you know, our connection to all of life, and in and through all five senses, that the five senses have no separation from life. So we know we are one with all of the universe. So I don't know if that helps, Amanda, because oftentimes, you know, people describe Ayurveda in what it means, the mm -hmm. etymology of it. It means the science of life. So yeah. what is it to be alive? And I would say today, like what has happened with yoga, but, but hopefully there's going to be a resurgence, and I feel there is, um, Ayurveda is also sometimes today being shared in a way that just touches the, the surface. Mm -hmm. And we see it shared as, you know, I, sort of Indian dietics or nutrition or maybe spa therapies. Well, I'm even wondering if the most relatable component of Ayurveda would have to do with the doshas, because I think that's the basic introduction to to Ayurveda for a lot of people. It is the basic introduction, but sometimes that I find makes it really complicated for individuals yeah, yeah. to understand the energetics and what am I, and it tries to give us a label again yes, I agree. before realizing that we're labelless. We are nature, and if we come into contact with some really commonsensical understandings about what it is to be a microcosm, mm -hmm. and if we just come in contact, I was saying it today in the online course, you know, really, one of the first cause of disease, according to Ayurveda, is what's called pragya parada, moving against wisdom, our natural wisdom. Like we are the living Vedas, we are life itself, and if we start to recognize that, then we know what it is to move in the flow of life. And so, what I was saying is really the medicine for any disease is presence. Like that's the highest medicine. So medicinally, my suggestion always to live Ayurveda is to live in stillness and closer to nature. So anything you can do. And so sometimes I find that if we move immediately to the content of learning what the doshas are, or learning some of the technology, the, the technical understandings of Ayurveda, it clouds the mind a little bit before we just come to this primary contact of be still and be in nature. And then you'll know the way of Ayurveda. Actually, you'll know the way of meditation and yoga also. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very valid point. I, I had never really thought of it that way, I guess, too, also with my yoga background and having yes. worked with you prior. But yes. I guess, yeah, if you have never heard of it before, never been introduced to it, it's it's a lot to digest. It's a lot to digest, literally. And we it talk is. about in Ayurveda that digestion is primary yeah. for everything else, right? So <laughs> yeah. it can be a lot. And what I find it does is what we try to do in our Western culture, give ourselves more labels. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm a Pitta Vata person, and that means I should do this and I shouldn't do that, and I'm going to be like this. But actually, we're trying to unlearn a lot of that a lot of that out, mm -hmm. empty out of that. So yes, I use that to help people to understand some of their uniqueness on this planet, in this body, in this uh, embodiment, in the sacred embodiment. But um, but firstly, orienting to that, be still and be in nature. Yeah, 
I even remember back to when, when you and I first connected, it was via zoom and you were in Ecuador. I can't actually remember where I was, wherever I was. And I just remember that one of the the things that I was to focus on primarily was the stillness and being in yes. nature and meditating yes. outside yes. and in yes. a green space and yes. how nourishing that was and yes. is, it continues to be. It's so yes. special. I wanted to flip back and ask you about lessons that your shift into India, if you were to pick out a few lessons that you think were kind of meant for you to learn. Do you, mm. Does that, mm. that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. What, what were some lessons that you just feel like you were meant to learn? Yeah, I love that, Amanda, because I often say, you know, life is a guru. It, it is truly, it's like Satguru. It's the greatest guru. And it, it, uh, it's truly aligned for our unique, our unique karmic arrangement. And I think the older we get, whether that's in soul or in body, we start to realize that, like there's no coincidence that these things are really, you know, there's such a, a destination. And so uh, being called to India, there was, to return to what we discussed before, there was really this um, recognition of the stillness underneath all the activity that I had learned early on. And that activity also had to do with uh, stress and, like I was saying before, achievement and dynamism and trying so hard to be seen in many ways, I would say even, you know, self-worth, which a lot of us, uh, there's various strategies mm-hmm. we use to, to, to sort of patch up yep. this attempt to mm-hmm. be worthy. And so I was really taught in the field of India, which is this holding space of the Vedas. And by coming to retreat and coming to all of these teachings, I really started to contact an inner worth that had nothing to do with what I did. You know, it had nothing to do with being seen. You know, a worth that's already there, existent in every one of us, and a goodness, you know, a real goodness. Like a love, we talk so much about self-love, but it's still, it's so superficial. Like a love for this embodiment as the divine itself. And in recognizing that, a real compassion for the suffering of others. You know, I was angry. Uh, I, I, there was a lot of anger. There was so much anger. And and when I look back to that time, so much of that was pride, literally pride out of the system. But in an oozing kind of way, it it just wanted to be free. Mm -hmm. I remember my first retreat, I went as a spiritual adventure, you know, my first uh, meditation retreat. Well, here's another thing I should do. I went to the very central point of India, the hottest place at that time. And, uh, And I'm sitting that retreat and I just thought it's another thing to do. I was still in the doership. And on the third day, I just broke down. There were so many memories of where the anger and all the protection from the anger and the survival around the anger had been calloused in my structure. Mm -hmm. And this softening, this inner softening and this inner contact with that, that worth, that spark of life that's totally untouched, you know, completely untouched by, by any suffering any pain, any anything that's happened to any of us in this life. And really touching that, um, it started to emanate outwards. And there was a real trust 
that was established from there that that's that's always there Mm -hmm. and the anger and some of the mechanisms around busyness although I have to say for those who know me busyness is still something that through this through this structure is is (laughs) still here but it's met in a different way I suppose yeah and there's no valuation you know there's very little Mm self-valuation that's found in the things that are done and um, and in that way, there's much more resource, like the way in you, you and I are coming together now. It's just everything's met with like, OK, it's another way that, that this can be shared in mm-hmm. this moment. But so much humility and oh, there's so many things that were seen. So yeah. I think you asked me for three. But you're nailing this. This yeah, is wonderful because so, I feel so. like that can really all be so combined. Absolutely. Yeah. So there there was a lot uh, and continues to be a lot. Mm-hmm, you know, it's an course. ever unfolding. Yeah. Yeah. Lifelong learning. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything that you could touch on? Like, don't feel like you need to dive into it, but is there anything in particular that you can touch on that was a source of anger that presented you with the opportunity to grow? Oh, absolutely. Like I remember that first retreat that, um, that I was referencing that there were so many memories of, uh, of the masculine especially. And I had had a history and it's still something that I, um, that I face, uh, directly and that I work with directly the karma around that. Um, and there had been everything from, you know, abuse, um, psychologically, but also physical abuse to also sexual abuse and, uh, and various memories that had been repressed that started to come up to the surface. Mm-hmm. And with that establishment in what I was saying, like this, this heart of beingness for the first time. And I just breathed as I was about to say, you know, this deep breath entered in of forgiveness and a deepened seeing of the collective pain body around the feminine and the masculine and, and all the ways I also was part of that. And I started to have forgiveness for the masculine and forgiveness for also some of my intolerance towards all of it. And that started to change a lot of my relational field. I've had beautiful, beautiful men in various ways in my life, uh, teachers and friends and partners and mentors. And um, it changed so many things in my life from that moment on. And, and the forgiveness, wow, it was literally like releasing so much somatic pain, so much suffering that had been held in this body and probably not just from this life, from many lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's something marked as you asked me that question. Yeah. With your learnings, with your lessons, you've now started an incredible business. And I feel like that is also so much of your why. Can you talk about Rasa Ayurveda? Yeah, I would love absolutely. for you to share about how that started. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people ask me, you know, or say to me, like, you're an entrepreneur. You started mm-hmm, your own meditation right. and yoga business, traveling around the world, offering various trainings. And I never thought of it like that. I just thought mm-hmm. of it as Dharma. And we would be asked over those years uh, to teach and, and continue to be uh, teaching in different countries and and um, I never thought of it from an entrepreneurial sense. Yeah. But I even remember as a child that I was an entrepreneur. You know, I used to do small things. I used to, I remember I used to make these pressed flower uh, headbands, you know, just cute little things yeah. that I would do and, uh, and starting my own babysitting company or whatever it was. And so that was always there. And the yoga meditation uh, and vichara yoga has, has been growing over the years and the teacher trainings and retreats. And it's been beautiful to see. And with Ayurveda, I started to see people clinically about six years ago. And, um, and so I would see people clinically while traveling to these various places and offering 
um, trainings and, and programs and retreats. And then also here in Peterborough, I had a clinical space where I would um, see people clinically for Ayurveda for those few months that I would be here. And what was happening, Amanda, was uh, I would bring uh, medicine from the U.S., from a beautiful company in the U.S., Banyan Botanicals, um, or I would make things. So I would prepare things for each individual um, client or patient, or if they, I was reaching them from afar, because I also have a virtual office, so I would see people online, um, I would suggest to them how to make these things, whether it was topical things to use, oils or lapums like uh, paste, different things, or ingestibles, things to take internally. And then it became really apparent that there wasn't a really fantastic Canadian, or there wasn't really one in general, um, source, an apothecary where all these things could be found. And I just kept having this compelling yearning to to make that more available. I would leave over the winter and give give people the formulations and say, here's how you can source it and make your make it yourself. Or I would make people, you know, a digestive formula or a, a formula for the mind or for sleep or whatever it was uh, for five, six months. And they were having real impactful benefits. Mm-hmm. And I was growing also in my love for what we call Draviaguna for herbalism because I was seeing uh, the gift of, you know, in the consultation, the changes in lifestyle, the changes in diet, the changes in the practices, the therapy that we'd use, we would use in yoga and meditation. But then I decided we needed to have a, a real source where we could have the clinical offerings, educational programs, whether that was around the world, online or in person, and also an apothecary. And that's how Rasa was born, really. And in one year, I haven't really said this before, but I'm going to say it to you. All of the formulations for Rasa were like literally channeled. It was it was a channeling. I would be up. I would wake up. They would come in dreams. Uh, people would come into my space. Herbs would be growing, and I would see them while I would be in India, and and there would be a relationship with them. It just started to come. It was a flooding. It was a full flooding, and so out of that, about a hundred and five different products. Wow. <laughs> I knew you had a lot, but that is just next level. And actually, there's a whole host of other products yeah. that we haven't launched because the formulas are there and waiting. But uh, but the business has just, if we can call it that, the dharma of what Rasa is has just uh, leapt forward. And really, officially, we are only one year old since the website went up and, and everything started to happen. And the Ayurveda online programs also are growing. We currently have 30 people in the online. And yeah, it's just growing in leaps and bounds. And every day I'm so, so touched to, to receive the testimonials of how these, which are not mine, you know, they're really not mine. That's what I mean by the, by the if we use channeling or vesseldom. You know, in Ayurveda, we believe in in Danwantri as the Lord of Ayurveda, the first doctor, the first Rishi. And through this lineage, I've had contact with some of the most powerful doctors I feel on the planet, like Dr. Vasant Lad is my Ayurvedic Guruji, and he is so eminent in bringing Ayurveda to the West, and um, as well as Dr. Sardesh Mook and Vidya Venkatesh. I've had these amazing teachers, and it's like this pouring down into, and to watch the way these these herbs and uh, and teachings are impacting people's lives. I mean, it's why is uh, is a three letter word that um, yeah that that contacts it just slightly. You know, it contacts it just slightly. But I would say on 
a weekly, if not a daily basis, I'm really brought to humbled tears because I'm, I'm, I'm just in awe. I'm really awestruck of how Ayurveda continues to live and how it's growing. And, uh, and Rasa is growing. We get, we get requests all the time now to ship worldwide and we're still Canadian based. We do it for friends and family and (laughs) everyone is our friend. (laughs) Yes. So it's happening more and more, but yeah, so that's, in a nutshell, that's what's that's what's there right now. I love Rosa. that you even said why, because I was going to ask you if you were to have to say or decipher what your why is, your reason. Can you articulate that? Yeah, I can articulate that it's not mine, firstly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an asking. There was an asking. Like, it's a clear asking. Don't we all have these lives and we end up in these places like you and I have said it, Amanda, that we never expected to be. I never expected to be in India in this life. I never expected to be sharing. You know, when we use that word teaching, I'm not teaching Mm -hmm. like something teaches through and and offers through. And I never expected in this life that, that this would come. So the why is really simply because simply because it's like I've been asked and it's a compelling force that literally uh, the heart leaps, the body lands. It's like the body ends up on a plane at times. Um, people arrive on my doorstep like you today. And, uh, and the why is that I just say yes. You know, it's a yesness. Like there's just this great yesness. And as long as I follow that yesness, I find that the current, it just gets stronger. Mm-hmm. It just gets stronger and stronger. And so I try not to get in the way of it by saying, I want to achieve this or achieve that in this life. I'm just here in the yes. And as I stay oriented to that yes, I just continue to be committed to, to bringing more peace on this planet and to seeing more and more lives uh, relieved of suffering. Mm-hmm. But even that, if I make it a goal, it limits it. Okay, so I, you're incredible. And even goals. I mean, there are so many people that will set a goal. They'll chase a goal. Right. And that's why I've also been so looking forward to this conversation with you because you shift my perspective every time we hang out, whether I have it shifted and then it sways back and then it's reshifted. And I, I've always really appreciated that because when it comes to setting goals, Often they can be so defined or definitive in some way that if you haven't achieved it or it's taking you a certain length of time, you're failing in some way, correct? Absolutely. And so even the questions that I typically ask at the end of a podcast, I, I can't wait to ask them because you're one of the first people I've never prepped them for. And I'm just excited to hear what your answers are going to be when we get there at the end. And Thank you for sharing that because I really think that a lot of listeners right now are going to be having that shift in perspective as to, wow, I mean, I set goals, but I don't have to anchor everything I am and everything I do on the achievement of that goal. Absolutely. Because as soon as we set up those expectations, those mind-based expectations, we do two things. And the first thing we do is we limit the resource of the moment. You know, sometimes life has a totally different trajectory and plan. Mm -hmm. And if we are so committed to that expectation, we limit even the seeing of it, Amanda. Have you seen that in your own life where, you know, life is trying to poke you and say, no, 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 this direction, this this direction. And we are so focused on this mind-based goal 
that it limits, it, it makes our view so parochial, so narrow, that we can't see the widened vision of what life is trying to have for us. Oh, yeah. And the second thing around that is it's an immediate setup for, for disappointment. You know, it's an immediate setup because whatever expectation we have from the mind, there's going to be some part of it, some part of it that's not going to turn out exactly the way we had mm-hmm. intended. Pictured it. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Now, some of us are better at, you know, as we would say in a very simple way, rolling with the punches. But most of us will feel some sort of defeat if we are really committed to that expectation. Mm-hmm. And so this holding it lightly, I'm not saying that, you know, there isn't a whispering or a screaming of the heart that asks each of us to move in what we call swadharma. Swadharma means our own individual purpose, like the way God calls through us. Mm-hmm. But to hold that lightly, like to listen to that day to day, rather moment to moment, breath to breath, rather than to create these vision boards five years from now when we don't know what the next second has for us, to live really like a pilgrim, you know, like a beggar, like so emptied out because we really don't know. And I personally, I can say that I've had personal Uh, experiencing with that my life completely and totally emptied out of everything that even there were subtle expectations about a year and a half ago everything was released and uh, and I was faced with exactly that how much expectation has been set up and how much are you really anchored to this moment and the possibility that life in any moment can die and be reborn how so I know you're I know what you're alluding to is the the ending of your last relationship your marriage and Working through something like that would be so difficult for anybody. And I mean, you're so enlightened in so many different ways and you have so many different perspectives and coping mechanisms that you've now acquired through traveling and learning and experiencing India and, you know, channeling all of these wonderful things that have happened to you to equip you with some strategies, I guess, to deal with the tough times. But what were some, I guess, specific things that maybe helped you Mm. release from the expectation of Mm. a long-lasting marriage when it ended? Yes, permanency, right? We have this fallacy of permanency. Mm -hmm. Like it became so striking for me that we... We believe in the permanency, even mm-hmm. though it's very clear. Is it not clear anyways that even if you are in marriage or partnership, whether that ends while you're both alive, it's going to end sometime with one of you or both of you dying. Mm-hmm. So, but we still, sometimes we, we, we hold this permanency and, um, and I, I feel that life really turns up the volume, you know, it turns up the volume on it's what I was saying before it's guruship, you know, what it offers us mm-hmm. as we're ripe for it. But even in saying that, I can humbly offer, Amanda, that there were times in that where I didn't feel like the volume was equivalent to where I was equipped. You know, it felt like I'm on the precipice here. And at times even, you know, I'm I'm teetering, like I'm holding on to a small thread of, of grass, you know, yeah. a small blade of grass. Uh, and And I'm being thrown off. Now I can say the catalyst of that was the best diving into the unknown I've ever known in this life. And if you were to ask me what some of the greatest anchors were, the best anchor during that time, what arises in this very moment is Sangha. The community of individuals I had around me in that time was so powerful. I'm really touched actually when I'm sharing that. To stay connected to Sangha is something I would say today is is so, so important because we have developed even in the culture worldwide that we are closer and closer in that 
and I mean that physically, we are closer and closer and that more people are inhabiting this planet every day, but we are farther and farther away from each other, Mm -hmm. both in our consciousness. Mm -hmm. We believe so much that we're separate. There's such a separation consciousness, but also, uh, in, in the way in which we come together, we no longer form community and we no longer have, or I'm saying this in a generalized term, of course, in response to that, in the fields, as you know, of yoga and meditation and spirituality, people are coming together in community. And so I'm highlighting there is an importance today because there is a great uh, chaos and we are in a time, you know, we've hit 2020 and there has been some planetary shifts now at this time in, in January. And I'm watching the rapidity in which chaos and tumult is hitting people's lives, both in the collective sphere and the individual sphere. And Sangha for me was so important. Uh, the sangha, the spiritual community, because I had never before really needed to lean into other individuals. Mm -hmm. And that was a very, very powerful anchor. And the other thing, of course, was the teachings of of non-duality, to really be asked to, to come to them in a lived, experienced way, in what we call jnana, experiential wisdom of them. And, uh, And if the mind got involved right now, I could say that many times I failed. You know, but, but I don't really go there. Many times I just, I really had to dust myself off. Mm -hmm. There was a real identification with the pain body. Let's say it in that way, with the pain of loss, with the story of what had been done to me, um, because there was an affair and many, many things and a leaving. And in that there was a loss of a home Mm -hmm. and many, it was, Mm -hmm. you know, in many ways it was a really, really ugly situation that, uh, that I discovered in from one day to the next. And even defining it as that, I had to let go of. But the teachings of of non-duality and really the recognition of impermanence, oh my God, the recognition of impermanence, everything lost in a moment and nothing lost. Nothing lost. You know, I remember sitting there and realizing nothing is lost. It's all just the clinging to. It's in the relationship with it that I feel a loss. It's in the thinking that that person or this vision, because there was a vision for an ashram and 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 a property and and many things that uh, that were seemingly lost. But really, when I I rested into the stillness of all of it, and there were times when that was longer and times when that was shorter. The simplicity was that this was guided. You know, it was guided. And now I sit here with you, and it's really clear. It's just so clear. You know what's been learned in and through that and there is a sobriety here that was never there before in my life a sobriety there's a true integration of the teachings also I would say that has meant that I have been able to come into an approachability for people's lives as well I can see that a relatability right to be in the muck to really be in the muck and uh, so many ways in which I can reach and be reached and so much more compassion mm-hmm. and empathy for mm-hmm. for what we each go through in our lives and how we can apply these things. So those things as well as Ayurveda, oh my God, Dinacharya, daily routine. Just today someone was calling me and she said, were the mornings the hardest for you, Tiffany? Because they're the hardest for me right now. And I said, yes. And she's going through something Yeah, she's going through something similar. And I said, the mornings were the hardest to wake up because the body and the mind forgot Amanda, so you wake up for the first, I would say two months, I would wake up thinking that my husband was still lying beside me Mm -hmm. or that I was, you know, 
it was a very eerie feeling and wake up in pure presence for a moment and then the collapse of the story remembering the remembrance would start to enter in and so the mornings uh what I did was I would anchor to my daily routine I would get up I would do my practice even if I was sobbing I would move towards doing some of the practices of cleansing, cleanse yesterday, cleanse it out. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. From everything from the simplicity of lemon water to tongue scraping to doing my daily abhyanga, my oiling, and I would just anchor as much as I could. And some days it was more than others, but that that was really an important one as well. So mm-hmm. I've named some of the things that were there, but the first one really, sangha, spiritual community. community. Yep. And I'm so deeply thankful. And I, I hope some of that community will also listen to this podcast. I'm, I know a lot of them will. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, because they were such pillars. And it was a beautiful reciprocity that I learned at that time as well. Because in my, in my life, I would say pre-offering uh, these teachings, even, and, and during, I've really, um, there's been somehow that I've been called to be an anchor for, for many other individuals and mm-hmm. for collectivities of individuals. Um, for groups, but uh, but I hadn't had to really lean into a deep vulnerability with others. Right. And that relatability, again, yeah. is just going to continue speaking volumes for others. Too. Yes. Yes. Doing the work. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you the wrap up questions okay. that okay. I did not prep you for <laughs> because I was excited as well for your answers, because a lot of the times now that I've been asking these that I've been realizing in some of the pre and post-recording chats that I have with my guests, we often get into a discussion of ego. Yes. Right? And you and I have had some very interesting discussions about ego in itself. But my question, my number one of three, is what are you most proud of? Oh, wow. Pride is such an interesting word, right? I know. In that way. (laughs) But what I I feel is that I went through a time where I would, uh, there would be a spiritual ego, And what I mean by that is a constructed personality that is spiritualized that would have some aversion to that word. And that in and of itself was an arrogance like, oh, no, I'm not proud of anything because nothing is mine. But coming full circle around that, the circle is still completing, let's say it in that way. But today I can say that there's a pride because I can feel that it's God's work. So it's more like I'm proud of God here. Let's say it in that way. I'm proud of God's work here. And... uh, and it's in the simple things, to be really honest. I just had a flash of a couple of uh, dear friends, Sangha members, uh, children, in the simple ways of contacting them in presence and really drinking them in and, and receiving them in the moment in their purity. It's in the simple moments of servitude when I notice that, you know, I walk out the door yesterday and I saw an elderly woman who was uh, struggling and there's a compelling force of, of God's servitude that asked me to ask her, you know, where are you going and can I help you to the car and how can we do this in mm-hmm. the simple things? Yes. You know? And I think moment to moment, there's like a pride that God has wiped some of the veils so I can be available to humanness and the beauty of humanness and just be here in a little less suffering and a little bit more availability and a little bit more uh, availability to the preciousness of what it is to be alive. So I'm really proud of that. You know, I'm proud that somehow there was a choosing mm-hmm. at this time. And mm-hmm. and the way God does the simple, you know, the simple works. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, some days I just feel so abundantly grateful. You know, that pride maybe 
transforms into into gratitude for the impact that some of these teachings have through this vessel. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, it's in simple ways. When someone calls me and says, yesterday uh, I found out, you know, that my mother uh, has cancer and today I'm meeting it with presence and with love and with an availability, but also with some strategies that have come through you. Thank you. And what that does is it's like a whiplash, Amanda. So I would say feeling proud is more like feeling grateful. Mm -hmm. And that whiplash means that I feel deeply blessed. And then I feel so thankful that in this life, somehow this, this arrived here Mm -hmm. somehow. Mm -hmm. So I can't stop smiling. That is such a beautiful answer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's like a, that's a, that's a touchy one. I like that. That's really got me. Okay, my second, oh, like that, I'm feeling that one. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for the question. Yeah. Okay, well, my second one for you is what would you like to be known for? Oh, my goodness. Huh, this is so funny. These questions are really good, Amanda. Um, oh. Last week, I was sitting with someone and... Uh, And we were discussing life insurance. (laughs) And I was mentioning to her that, you know, truly there's no insurance in this life. You know, the irony of that. And then the idea of that life insurance, you know, who would I leave if there was money? Who would I leave that money to? And, you know, since I was a child, I felt both deeply connected and very alone you know, both have been there. And and they're not separate, I would say. They're not separate. So when you ask that question, I notice that I would like to be known in that there be some kind of ripple effect just of more peace on this planet. And it seems so cliche, but just somehow that my being here at this time is so committed to wakefulness mm-hmm. that there be, you know, little drops of awakening that more beings come home to themselves while, while they're here. But also, I feel that, you know, to live this life in simplicity and to be known in the unknown would be a really, a well-lived life, you know, to, to not have had to have some kind of legacy. And I guess it goes back to the last question that you asked, just in the simple acts that we do day to day, you know, the little acts of, I won't even say kindness, the little acts of presence. So there's nothing in me that's compelled for a legacy whatsoever. And at the same time, everything is compelled in me that may all beings be free. Mm, I like that. So I don't know that there are two, but uh, yeah, that's how I would answer that in this moment. Yeah. And the last one is if you had the world's attention and had one message that you could share with the world, what would it be? Oh my goodness. Maybe that would go back to what we talked about before, to be still and be in nature. You know, because I feel that that today, the more stillness and whatever that looks like, Mm -hmm. you know, we might think of it in this Vedic tradition, stillness as as meditation or um, the practices that we, we may have learned or become acquainted with. But there are so many ways to contact stillness. And even, you know, someone who has no contact with um, technical teachings, 
let's just say it in that way, we all live as that stillness. It's just there's a whole host of armory that's covered it up. And so I feel getting more time in nature and being more still would really change the field of our relationship with ourselves, with others, and with this earth. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk so much about outer disarmament, about we gather to talk about what's happening to the planet and what we should do and what we could be doing. But I'm always touched and impacted by something years ago that His Holiness, the Dalai Lama said, which is for any outer disarmament, firstly look to inner disarmament. Allow the internal war to come to peace, really. And so I feel in that way, the messaging would be to get still and to come into acquaintance with our own inner nature because that will really uh, tell the tale for how our external lives are lived. Mm-hmm. And it, it changes everything. And that's why I even, you know, I see one day spent with individuals in in retreat or or spent like we had this last Sunday spent together in in a in understanding of Ayurveda, live living of Ayurveda. People walk away differently. The way they look at each other is different. The way they move is slower. The choices of what they eat changes. Mm-hmm the way they talk to their loved ones or their children and the choices of what they buy or they don't, right? So for me, maybe that would be the message, just to still and 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 to be more connected to the beauty of nature because she has so much to speak. She has so much to speak and so much to purify and she polishes the heart in a way that, that really will then align us to the way of nature. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be it. I love it. Thank mm-hmm. you so much oh thank you so much Amanda I'm so deeply grateful it's been so beautiful what a beautiful uh, a beautiful service you're bringing to the world through this the safe haven it feels yeah Yeah. it feels exactly that exactly that a haven to come into the safety of our own hearts Mm -hmm. oh well that's what I hope to continue spreading so oh thank thank you you. so much thank you so much thank you thank you and oh actually before I wrap up actually before I close this off i need people to know where to find you where could they find rasa ayurveda like, absolutely let's plug that okay so um so there's two websites actually my uh-huh. own uh website if we can say it is uh tiffany nicholson smith.com i'll link all of these two yep and then also rasa ayurveda is rasa ayurveda.com so either of those areas you can find everything from worldwide uh offerings retreats teacher trainings ayurvedic retreats uh the apothecary and all of our products online courses and you can also go onto our instagram accounts my own instagram is tiffany tiffany.nicholson.smith and um rasa uh underscore Ayurveda yeah so um, both of those are there and uh, and of course we're on Facebook and there's lots of ways and you can also just call me up yeah I'll link all of these links for the socials at the bottom of the podcast wonderful perfect yes I'm glad we remembered that or that I did yes yes (laughs) okay well to my listeners thank you so much for listening to another episode of the safe haven podcast I have learned that the most effective way to share this is to simply screenshot on the device that you're using and whether you message it to a friend or you share it in an Instagram story or write onto Facebook that that helps so much. Share it with someone if it's resonated with you. And if in fact you are interested in supporting the podcast in more ways than just listening, if you go to the safehavenpodcast.podbean.com and go to the top right, there's a little green button there that says become a patron. There is no obligation in sharing this way. It just allows me to continue chasing these stories and making sure my equipment is covered. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.